I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we have a double feature. Later on, we'll be talking with journalist Andy Worthington about the sordid history of the Guantanamo Bay military prison, thanks to former Guantanamo Bay detainee Mansour Idafi, accusing Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis of being directly involved in inhumane activities at the military prison. Before we get to that, however, we have a very special conversation with Jordanian filmmaker Derin J. Salam, the writer and director of the deeply moving new movie, Farha, which chronicles the story of a brave and curious young woman whose life is irrevocably changed by the events that have become known in the Palestinian and broader Arab world as the Nakba, or the catastrophe that saw Palestinian Arabs forcibly displaced from their homeland. The film tells a deeply harrowing and traumatic story However, I also found it deeply moving, and in a certain respect, hopeful. Darren and I talk a little bit about that in the conversation to follow. I can't recommend the movie Farha nearly enough. Words do not do it justice. I found it deeply moving, and am happy to report that it has been submitted to the Academy for award season. If you'd like to give it a watch, It's currently available for streaming on Netflix, and has caused quite a stir, with some accusing it of anti-Semitism. And yes, in case you're wondering, Doreen will address those accusations as well in the following conversation. 
So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Doreen J. Salam, the writer and director of Farha, a movie that I hope, after listening to this conversation, you'll make an effort to see. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I was just, I had to get on the show. Uh, Terin J. Salam, the director and writer of a film that is now streaming on Netflix. I was moved to tears by it. Uh, it is a moving piece of art. The movie is called Farah. Uh, how are you doing today, Terin? I'm good, Jay. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So if you could, for my listeners, this new movie, Farah, uh, could you tell them it's based on the events uh, that are known in the Arab and Palestinian world as the Nakba or the catastrophe. And this is also based on, on a real life woman. It, it's, it's based on a true story. Could you tell my listeners um, what the Nakba was and who this story is based on? Yeah, the Nakba or the catastrophe, as you said, is uh, the ethnic cleansing that happened to the Palestinians in 1948, uh, where Palestinians like around eight hundred thousands of Palestinians were forced into exile from their villages and cities and where like hundreds of villages were destroyed and ten, uh, tens of massacres happened. Uh, and because of this event, now around seven million Palestinians are refugees around the world. And could you speak a little bit about this is based on a real woman? Um, you've changed the name, I think, but could you talk about her? Yeah, the real character's uh, name was Radiyah. Um, so, um, yes, my, my mother met, uh, there was a, a girl that was locked up uh, in a room in 1948 by her father to protect her life from the, the events that are happening. And he promises her that he will be back, but he never does. So uh, she survives the room and she goes to Syria. She walks to Syria and she meets my mother there and shares the story, uh, like what happened. And my mother, when I like when she grew up and got married, she shared the story with me. So, uh, so the story stayed with me, and I decided to um, to share it with the world when I became a, when I grew up and became a filmmaker uh, for many reasons because I was claustrophobic, and this made me relate to the character and and feel with her. But also, I felt kind of um, somehow that I know the character, I know this girl, um, and I feel with her. Um, and she stayed with me all these years for a reason. I felt like uh, I felt the urge to share her story. Uh, so basically, and uh, yeah, and I changed the name of of the girl uh, from Radiya to Farha, uh, and Farha means uh, joy. And it's how how like everybody used to talk about Palestine, the old people who lived there before 1948. So it's like the joy that they uh, lost or that was stolen from them in Palestine. Could you talk a little bit about your experience? Well, I guess first your experience writing this story, because I, I mean, this is very, it's upsetting subject matter, seeing what happens to Farah throughout this movie and the pain she experiences. So what was it like writing the story and, and you know, telling it in a way that was thoughtful and tasteful and really respected the Palestinian people? Yeah, um, when I want, like when I, um, I heard a lot of stories growing up about Palestine. Um, this is the natural thing in, in Jordan and in like in the Arab world. 
uh, you grow up listening to stories and what happened in Palestine. So uh, I heard many stories and all of these stories came patched together to create the world of Farha. But I always uh, wanted to make a, a humane story uh, and a story about a child uh, and a coming of age film and not, not treat Farha as a number of the people that I mentioned, uh, the number I mentioned, the, the 800,000. I wanted to treat her as a human being who was forced into these events and that she didn't choose, you know, she didn't choose to be in this place. Um, so um, to me, it's a story about uh, about um, an ambitious girl and her journey, a girl who wants to get an education, who seek an education in the city. And her dream changes from education into like surviving uh, this event. Um, so yeah, as I said, I, I I wanted to focus on her journey, uh, like as a close up on her emotional, humane journey, and leave everything political in the background. Uh, it's just part of her journey. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. I think a lot of people that have talked about the film focus on um, the Nakba and how it's covering that uh, from a Palestinian perspective, but I feel it's also a, a really a story about a young girl. Who is willing to face uh, adversity? I mean, she she has a will to survive. Um, is that what the film is about to you? I mean, I guess the film represents many things at once. Yeah, actually, the, to me, the film is about uh, about um, friendship, about uh, ambition, uh, love, separation, aspiration, and and uh, uh, rite of passage and liberation in the face of loss. So. Um, as you said, it's many things. Uh, it's many things to me. Um, it's about, uh, I mean, a young girl, as I said, uh, who's who's forced uh, into becoming a woman in this room, uh, and her life just changes because of this event that she again didn't choose to be in, and this uh, situation. So um, to be to me, it's it's a humane story. It's a timeless and universal. Uh, uh, a story that could happen anywhere and anytime. If you could, uh, this was your your fe first feature film uh, as a director. I know you've done some short films. What was the experience of directing a feature length film like uh, your debut here as a feature length filmmaker? And what were the challenges that you faced while making it? Actually, um, choosing to make your debut feature uh, a period piece is not easy. It comes with uh, responsibility, especially like you said, when when it comes, you have to uh, stay um, um, respectful to this uh, uh, period and this. I mean, the, the the heritage and the traditions and all of the things that that uh, like how Palestine was uh, at the time. So um, it was a responsibility by itself having to go back to recreate Palestine 1948, uh, but also the setup, having most of the film happening in one, uh, and most of the film happening in one place, one room, uh, which is one of the challenges, actually, the things that are, that made me attracted to the story. Uh, uh, I imagined, uh, uh, like, um, um, like as a writer and director, I imagined what could happen inside this room uh, with her, um, and, and I was editing all that. So it was, exciting uh, but challenging of course um uh, but also working with non-actors uh was a challenge that i really also enjoyed and and loved um 
uh, actually funding funding the film funding a film about Palestine 1948 is not easy at all people always uh, avoid and um, yeah avoid getting close to this topic so funding it was a challenge as well could you talk a little bit about um, how you worked with some of the different actors you had a few um, well-known actors in it as well as um, uh, the the lead actress this is her first role right could you talk about how she got cast in the film and how you worked with her it's an intense role for her to be in it is and uh, yeah i mean it, it was it was uh, a journey by itself finding uh, farha and i always told my producers it's going to be um, a long process um because as you saw most of the film happens like each shot in the film is with her and on her like she's she's in, in every shot so um um i mean in every scene i mean so um the the first audition i always say that the first audition wasn't a good one with karam uh, she was shy and she didn't have any experience or she wasn't comfortable in front of the camera so it wasn't uh, the 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 audition that really made me want to uh, give her a chance but other things like her face was very different and it's it's like it took me back in time you feel it's uh, like it it comes from a different um time <laughs> and also her eyes are very expressive um and when i when we were taking uh, pictures for her this angle was like she's a child she looks like a child and this this profile she's a young woman um and to me that was very interesting because it's a coming of age film and i have to see her growing up you know becoming a woman so i used this actually in shooting uh the angles and the, the uh like after knowing her face uh, and then I saw her again, and after the second audition, uh, I decided that I'm gonna invest in her and uh, and risk because it's always a risk with non actors. So uh, I gave her a workshop for her and the other girl, uh, Farida, her best friend, um, whose name is Tala. So Tala and Karam, uh, and we did like few months uh, together. Uh, and the, the workshop actually was about non, how not to act uh, <laughs> and how to be comfortable in front of the camera and to be able to stand in front of famous actors or like uh, 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 amazing actors like Ashraf Barhoum and Ali Sliman and not be, um, you know, afraid. Uh, but actually both, they never read the script of the film. Yeah, it was, it was, I was trying something with them on set and they never read it. So do you see a lot of yourself in in Farah? I, I don't mean just her her heritage or her um you know passing down the story of the Nakba because you're passing that story down, but also her desire to learn, her desire to explore, and her desire to achieve her dreams. And I think you've achieved a dream here. Uh, I mean, this movie is getting submitted to the Academy, and you know, I think more and more people uh, are seeing it in, in the Western world and beyond. Yeah, actually, many people who watched the film and they know me, they they told me that like there's similarity between you and Farha, and I see why. I think um, I think um, uh, how she's uh, a rebel and how she like she doesn't say she doesn't take no as an answer, and uh, uh, she's a fighter, uh, ambitious. Uh, 
Um, I think as a writer, like all writers and directors put um, uh, themselves in the characters. I think it's a natural thing. Um, and I do believe it's, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I saw that as well. <laughs> so I don't have this question in my notes, but I, I was curious what inspired you uh, to get into film and are there any films or movies that have influenced you over the years? Um, actually, I, I always, um, I, I mean, I never tried to become a filmmaker. I never knew that I want to be a filmmaker. I just um, um, had an idea um, and it haunted me and I kept thinking and visualizing how it would look if I shoot it. And then I, I found myself shooting a short film, a two minutes film. And that's how I became a filmmaker actually. Um, it's not, uh, I wasn't, I was never obsessed with a, a filmmaker or a, or a specific film. Um, but I, I like some, some um, actually there's no one specific film that I I saw when I was young that inspired me. But I think it's um, moments from different movies. Uh, it's moments and emotions that I felt while watching different movies. No, I asked that because um, what's interesting about this film is I've seen people describe it in different ways. So I know some people that will say it's a drama. Um, other people say it's it's almost um, just a coming of age story. I, I even had someone say to me yesterday that it reminded them of a um, a scary movie or a horror movie, and uh, I could I could see why they say that because the events in it are so traumatic. Uh, but one thing I wanted to get into was how did you approach telling uh, the traumatic events of the Nakba, especially you know I don't want to spoil the movie for people, but the uh, the climax of the movie, you handle that very well, and you don't want to show everything, I noticed, in that climax. Could you talk about why you chose not to show everything in, in you know, gory detail and um, just how you approached showing this in a respectful manner? Actually, yes, because, um, yeah, I think less is more. And, uh, and I mean, I wanted the, this film to be a tribute to this girl. I wanted people to live um, the journey of this girl and witness what she uh, witnessed and uh, see from her eyes and hear what she heard. Um, and and I didn't want to show really blood because I wanted that only or the most the blood that you would remember in the in the scene is the blood when Farha gets her period. Uh, uh, because it's the death of her childhood. Um, that was to me what's important because again, it's about uh, her journey from being a girl into becoming a woman. Um, yeah, and as I said, I wanted everything to be from her perspective um, and about her, um, not about... Um, the Nakba in general. The Nakba is just where the story takes place historically. Could you talk a little bit about, I know you've spoken in other interviews um, about what it was like on set. I know you had some, I, I believe you had refugees from Gaza 
um, as extras in the film. Uh, could you talk about how maybe uh, some of the scenes got emotional for people who were working um, in cast and crew? Yeah, actually, even the the ladies who did the embroidery uh, for the dresses, the costumes, uh, they were also from uh, um, uh, Gaza camp, refugee camps in in, uh, in Jordan, uh, from Jarash. Um, and they were, uh, I mean, they were also on set uh, as extras. And it was really emotional to them, especially the separation scene between Farha and Farida. They were crying uh, uh, as if they were uh, reliving uh, what they heard about uh, Al-Nakba and, and um, what their uh, families went through. Uh, so we had to to have some time to, uh, I mean, a moment of silence to pay respect to this moment and to these people. Yeah, it was emotional to most even of the crew because uh, most of them had families that lived this. So um, yeah, behind, behind the monitor, some crew members were emotional in some scenes yeah was a lot of that emotion just coming from a place of finally someone is telling the the story that they were told growing up uh you know was it a matter of remembering what one's parents told them about what happened with the nakba was that part of the emotion behind a lot of that i think so i think as i said because uh as arabs we all grow up uh, uh we know about this um uh, uh this horrible like uh, event and the the uh the losses that we like faced as as um arabs and uh, even jordanians who have some palestinian uh, uh roots um but also i think seeing it in front of your eyes and imagining like like you believe that like these really happened these things happened it's uh, it's it's a shock to, to just um and I, I somebody said something uh from the people who sent me on social media they said um uh, we like we were able to pose whenever we felt it's too heavy for us but palestinians can't pose you know so it's uh, yeah i think just imagining that these things really happened to palestinians uh, is emotional how important was it for you to show the world that Farah inhabits? In other words, you know, you don't just focus on, you know, her struggle to survive, but you develop her relationship with Farida and also her relationship with her father, who, as much as they may argue with each other, they really do love each other. Um, so could you talk about how important it was for you to show uh, that side as well as the tragic side later on in the film? Yeah, um, of course, because uh, at some point I was thinking maybe to shoot, to make the whole film happens in the room. But then I wanted, I decided to add this 20 minutes at the beginning of her in her village, in her world, um, with her best friend, with her father, her uncle, and and like, um, and the girls from the Kutab, um and all the characters, because I wanted to show the life that she had and the things that she will lose later on, uh, because she faces a lot of losses. And I wanted the audience to see and feel with her and see and, and feel that they lost what she lost. 
I just wanted to add to that that I think your approach to telling this story was very interesting because in a large portion of the movie, Farah is completely isolated. She's just stuck in this room um, and having to see these events unfold. And it's not a movie where you're just seeing massacres happen or anything like that. I, I think you really express, express what people go through, uh, the, the sort of claustrophobic isolation people can go through when everything is torn from them, uh, when their home is torn from them and their, their lives and their community is torn from them. Uh, was that something that you were hoping to sort of get at in, in telling this story? Yes, I, I wanted to choose uh, I, uh, some different um, cinematic language, I can say, uh, because uh, as you said, it's not um, epic when it comes to the battle scenes or the amount of extras and the big scenes it's epic when it comes to the internal conflict and the, the emotions that she's going through this young girl uh, um, and it's uh, although it's uh, it, it seems that it's uh, it's an easy or short or small innocent film but it's heavy uh, with the content and with the sounds and with the um, the feeling the the audience the, the what the audience would feel w with the senses that like what they're hearing and what they're seeing all senses together and it's intensive and this is what i wanted um, uh, in this film i wanted to be different heavy in its own way and epic in its own way i also i guess we had to address this at some point i know there's been i guess a backlash against the film and people in, in my view, mischaracterizing the film as um, anti-Semitic or, or anti-Jewish. Uh, could you address maybe those claims? Because I, I feel that they're misunderstandings. I think people are not really understanding the film if that's what they get out of it. Yeah, since you mentioned that, uh, uh, Jay, actually I feel as, as, a, as, a, as an Arab Semite woman, I feel uh, uh, offended. Uh, to be to be accused uh, uh, of being anti-Semite and to like of all the accusations, uh, I think it's very um, inhumane and unethical to be accused that or, or to deny this event or the Nakba or the killings that happened back then, because it's it's like as if denying the tragedy of a nation of this number of people the 800,000s of people like it's it's offensive and it's not acceptable you know so this is what i can say uh, i mean there's a big amount of like hate and hateful messages uh, and to be honest i don't understand why because it's just a small scene a 15 minute scene it's very small compared to what happened back then yeah, I just wanted to add to that. I, I'm not going to spoil the film, but I, one of the things that stood out to me was um, you even at one point have um, an Israeli soldier who he has trouble carrying out an order. He he does not want to harm this child, and he he eventually just covers the child up. Even he's conflicted about the brutality, and I thought that was a very telling scene um, because I don't think you're trying to portray, you know, um, Jewish people is all just being monsters. I think you're um, portraying events that happened. And uh, 
you know, the people who committed these acts, uh, the, the inhumanity that they treated these um, Arab people with. As you said, I'm, I'm portraying truth. And I really feel that, especially that the film is on Netflix now, I really want for people to watch it and not explain myself and not explain my scenes. And you know what I mean? No, I, I, I totally understand that. Um, is there any aspects of the film that, not that you could explain, but I've noticed that there were certain motifs in the film or, or themes that kept coming up. Um, one of my listeners wanted to wanted me to ask you about the reoccurrence of um, water throughout the movie. Water seems to play an important role. I don't know if you could comment on that, but one of my listeners wanted to know about the role of water as a symbol in the film. Yeah, water is life. And, uh, and, uh, and when she goes under the water, for people that watch the film, it's like she's being reborn, it's rebirth. Um, also, when, when a child comes to life, the first thing they, they say, like, water comes out, you know? So it's, uh, it's uh, to me, it's the rebirth of, of um, as I said, it's liberation in the face of loss. Farha has to live with all these losses, with all these, like, burdens, like all Palestinians uh, who survived. They have to move on. They have to live in spite of everything, uh, carrying all of these things and traumas with them. Uh, so water is life. I just had a few more brief questions. You know, when I watched the movie, I found it very harrowing. Um, it was uh, it was hard to see the struggle that Farah goes through. However, I don't... I think it ends on a hopeful note. It felt hopeful to me because Farah does, you know, live to see another day and she continues um, to pursue her dreams. And uh, I, I just think there's, there is a lot of hope in the film. And I think the title of the film shows that the title of the film is joy, you know, so maybe you could talk about that. Do you think Farah ultimately is a hopeful story? As I said, I think it's, uh, it's two, the two words together. Uh, liberation in the face of loss is the most expressive uh, thing that can tell the ending of the film because uh, because she's forced to 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 live with all these things that she as again she didn't choose to to carry all these burdens but she's forced to live uh, because she's strong she can't just. Uh, uh, let go and accept and like die, you know, she's she's strong and she wants, it's like, again, uh, the Palestinian people who are uh, fighting to live, like, although everything is difficult, living is difficult, but they have to move on. Uh, it's the same um, to me. Maybe she didn't live her dreams, but she lived, she survived. That's true, she survived. Um... I think that's a good way to put it. Also, you can't, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Jay, but you can't really have um, uh, a closure when it comes to uh, 1948 because uh, because the wound is still open, you know? it's it's uh, People are still living uh, the pain every day, yeah. So... Before we close out, I, I just had one or two more questions. Um, one of them is, what do you hope that audiences 
get out of uh, watching Faro? What, what do you hope they, uh, well, I mean, I guess it's up for them to decide um, what they get out of it, but what, what do you hope audiences learn from it? Um, I hope that the film would be an eye opener and I hope that it lives uh, with them uh, and that it it, uh, it lives over the years and it it, it reaches to uh, coming generations. And I hope I hope it stays with their hearts and minds. This is what I hope. I was just gonna say, uh, it's interesting because Farah lives to tell her story, and in a way, uh, even after we're long gone, people may remember this movie um, years and years from now. So you you've passed the story on yourself. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. I also wanted to ask, um, I, I know there was a lot of involvement of, you know, you had female producers and a large female crew and, and cast. Could you talk about uh, the importance of having, you know, um, women involved in the movie? Yeah, I was, uh, I'm very lucky to have my uh, producers, uh, Dima Azar and Aya Jordana. Um, uh, they're amazing. But also, we always, uh, as you said, there are many heads of departments in our crew that are women. But it's important to mention that we never planned, or it was it wasn't on purpose. It just happened that uh, they are qualified and they did an amazing job. Uh, the costume designer Jamil Aladdin uh, and uh, the costumer on set uh, Zena Sofan and many like. Uh, uh, Rula, the makeup artist. I mean, many uh, of the uh, the team are women, and they're uh, amazing. And the DOP, director of photography, as well. Um, so, uh, I think it's um, yeah. I mean, whoever is qualified for the job takes the job. A man, a woman, doesn't matter. I was going to ask. Um, I know we've talked about you know some of the more hysterical reactions to the film um but what what have the positive reactions been i know you showed the movie at um toronto international film festival um mm -hmm. and it's been shown elsewhere uh, could you talk about how it's been received by people who enjoyed the film like i said I, I mean i cried through it i i thought it was incredible but what are what have some of the other positive responses been um actually uh, before that i want to mention also i want to mention rana Eid, who did the sound design uh, who's also a woman uh, uh, and i want to mention her because um she did an amazing job uh, for those who watched the film recreating the the sound of of palestine and the nakba and uh, as you saw the film depends more like in, in many moments only on sound when it's very dark with farha in the room so I want to to mention her name because she did an amazing job, in my opinion. And now going back to the audience, um, actually, in in like the film uh, premiered in Toronto, International Film Festival, and uh, the feedback was amazing because uh, it was, um, as I said, the world premiere, and I, I was kind of you know you feel exposed for the first time, but it was the audience was very emotional and friendly and curious and they were great uh, the, the q a continued after the film like maybe an hour and a half outside the theater um but also in europe uh and in the arab world like where, wherever we go with the film 
there are different questions and and it's always interesting to hear uh, people's opinions and but what i loved is that it's like it's always emotional they always felt with farha like many people said i imagine my daughter in farha's place uh, and many people related to uh, uh, um, to the film and they're not even arab uh, or Palestinians to, to their uh, country. Uh, they like it reminded them of their country. Uh, an Indian woman, I remember, said a beautiful thing. Like it was beautiful hearing from different uh, nationalities and uh, uh, people from the world from the world being feeling touched by Farha. So uh, it's it's very emotional. People are um, like, um, I mean, wherever I go, I feel touched by people's comments. In closing, I'm curious, what do you think the hope is uh, for you when it comes to the Palestinian people and just the Arab world going forward? I mean, what what do you think the hope is at the end of the day? I mean, I, I can hope, but uh, to start with, let's talk about basic human rights. And then we can talk more. I agree. So if you could let my listeners know uh, they can watch Farah uh, through Netflix. And is there anything else you want to say in closing? I just want to give you the final word. I just want to say that it's uh, some people are not being able to watch the film. It's uh, and they they think it's banned. It's not banned. It's it's uh, worldwide except for uh, Scandinavia and Taiwan. But you have to put the settings uh, in English uh, for Netflix. And I want also to thank thank you, uh, Jay, and for the listeners, but also thank you to all the people who are supporting us and sending us uh, messages and uh, feedback about the film. It means the world to us. Thank you so much. And I highly recommend everyone see the movie. Uh, and I hope everything goes well with, I know you're submitting it to the Academy, right? Yes, and I really hope the film uh, really like is... I really hope that everything that happened lately doesn't uh, like cause any injustice to the film in the Oscars uh, race. I really hope so. Thank you again, Darian Salam, for coming on Parallax Eves. Thank you so much. Next up, journalist Andy Worthington, author of The Guantanamo Files, the stories of the 774 detainees in America's illegal prison, joins us to discuss the sordid history of the Guantanamo Bay military prison in Cuba. This conversation was spurred by former Guantanamo prisoner Mansour Idafi's accusations that 2024 Republican U.S. presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis was directly involved in torture at the military prison. That specific subject is discussed in the latter portion of the conversation to follow. But before that, we delve into the history of Guantanamo Bay, its origins under the Bush administration and its war on terror, as well as why Guantanamo Bay was not shut down by President Barack Obama despite his campaign promises 
to close down the controversial military prison. We'll also discuss Guantanamo Bay in the Trump years and Guantanamo Bay today, along with much, much more. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with journalist Andy Worthington. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very happy to have on. I've been following his work through shows like The Scott Horton Show and Guerrilla Radio. Big fan of his work for a number of years now. Uh, Andy Worthington, author of The Guantanamo Files, the stories of the 774 detainees in America's illegal prison. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, Thanks very much for uh, taking an interest in my work. I'm looking forward to this interview. So the reason I wanted to have you on now is because uh, there's a little bit of talk about Guantanamo Bay uh, due to a recent interview with one of the detainees, uh, Mansour Adafi, um, did with, I believe it was Eyes Left or The Empire Files. And he was talking about DeSantis and DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis, the Republican politician that looks to be a presidential hope for, for the GOP in 2024. Uh, But apparently, uh, DeSantis is being accused by this former detainee of being involved in torture at Guantanamo. So we have a lot of people talking about Guantanamo Bay right now. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the DeSantis news, but for younger listeners, maybe you could give a little bit of background on what Guantanamo Bay is and what has gone on there. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, Guantanamo has been um, open for 20 years, nearly 21 years now. It was opened on January the 11th, 2002, so exactly four months after the uh, terrorist attacks of September the 11th, 2001. Um, And it was set up by the Bush administration to be somewhere that was uh, deliberately intended to be beyond the reach of the US courts, Um, a prison where um, they could do what they wanted without any interference. It's in Cuba, um, right? Huh? It's in Cuba, right? It's in Cuba, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the prison is um, is attached to a naval base that has been on uh, uh, in in Cuba's easternmost bay, uh, Guantanamo Bay. Apparently, um, a very beautiful place before the Americans took it over for the naval base. Um, but yeah, that that dates back to um, the um, the United States um, involvement in Cuba at the end of the nineteenth century and the. Um, they have a lease on the on the naval base, which um, can only be broken if both sides agree to it. Uh, that's the Cuban government and the U.S. government. So seeing as the U.S. government wants to stay there, the Cubans can't do anything about it. Um, and so the prison was chosen, you know, like I say, because the, the Bush administration thought that it would be beyond the reach of the courts. And, you know, that should set alarm bells ringing for people. If you want to set up a prison that doesn't have um, any kind of outside scrutiny, why would that be? Um, you know, and the conclusion you would have to reach from that is that they intended um, to not be bound by any laws regulating um, the treatment of prisoners. And the problem for Guantanamo from the very beginning, really, has been that um, you, you or I or your listeners, you know, what we all need to reflect on living in uh, um, countries that claim to be um, democracies in some way rather than dictatorships is that 
Um, if we're to be deprived of our liberty, there are only two routes to that that are acceptable. The first is that, you know, we're apprehended um, in connection with a crime. We're charged uh, in connection with that crime and put on trial. Um, the other involves um, a, a war situation. So if you're captured in wartime, then the basis on which you're imprisoned is that you're taken off the battlefield um, and held unmolested and protected by the Geneva Conventions until the end of hostilities. And what the United States did after 9-11 um, at Guantanamo was to set up um, a prison in a place where the prisoners fundamentally had no rights whatsoever as human beings. It's, it's kind of crucial to understand that they literally had no rights as human beings at the very beginning. Um, and actually, you know, efforts to um, secure rights for them, which were undertaken from the very beginning by a handful of very brave lawyers, um, actually took many years to, um, to reach fruition. Um, it actually took two and a half years after the prison opened um, before they managed um, to secure um, the support of the Supreme Court in ruling that the men held at Guantanamo had habeas corpus rights. In other words, that they had the basis to challenge uh, why they were being held. Um, even then, that was, you know, the Bush administration then persuaded Congress um, to try and overturn that ruling. Um, and the prisoners um, didn't get full habeas corpus rights for another four years. But it was crucial that that decision at that point in June 2004, that it finally allowed lawyers to um, to begin visiting the prison to start representing the men held there. And that, if you like, um, pierced the veil of secrecy that until that point had absolutely enshrouded Guantanamo, behind which, of course, um, you know, the US administration was able to do what it wanted to prisoners um, without any fear of being held accountable. Um, and what it was doing to the, the people it was holding at Guantanamo um, in many ways was um, it was you know fundamentally unacceptable. There were all kinds of forms of torture and abuse taking place at the prison. Um, so you know that that's how it was set up. Well, one thing I wanted to get into was you know I remember the Bush years very vividly, and the line that we always would hear is enhanced interrogation, enhanced interrogation. I mean, this was torture though, uh, and maybe you could. I mean, I don't want to get sensationalistic, but maybe you could describe what the techniques of torture that were used at Guantanamo. Well, sure. I mean, you know, I think the thing for people to that people need to know is that there were basically, um, you know, a number of um, different forms of torture and abuse that were sanctioned um, uh, under the Bush administration in the war on terror. So, you know, the, the CIA um, ran its own network of black sites of secret prisons where where torture was used on people that were regarded as high value detainees. And, you know, those particular techniques were specifically um, approved by um, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is um, supposed to um, advise the administration impartially about um, what, what, what it's able to do and what it's not able to do, but which actually approved the use of torture. Um, at Guantanamo, which was under the control of the military, um, although there was briefly a CIA-run black site in Guantanamo, but, you know, the prison was run by the U.S. military. So instead of the, uh, this being um, the CIA and, um, and, you know, Dick Cheney had, uh, had um, uh, I think, a big part to play 
um, in the whole of the torture and black site program. Um, it was Donald Rumsfeld as the defense secretary at the time who was ultimately in charge of Guantanamo. Um, so first of all, holding people without any rights whatsoever in a situation where um, you've got a government which is claiming that these guys are the worst of the worst, um, that in fact, it turns out they you know, didn't know who they had. Um, right, they're they the worst were, of the worst, and they're not even given a trial to prove otherwise. Well, know, they didn't even undertake any kind of um, credible screening process to establish whether they had the worst of the worst. They decided that that was the case and then decided to um, make the prisoners themselves fit the story that they were putting out. So when these people, you know, didn't break under pressure and confess that they were part of Al-Qaeda, they decided that they were resistant to interrogation and therefore they subjected them to torture and abuse to make them come up with the stories that they thought they were hiding. I mean, it's a kind of classic witch hunt scenario, if you like. And so what happened as a result of this is that in a handful of cases, Donald Rumsfeld specifically approved torture techniques some of which were similar to the ones being used by the CIA for use on a very small number of people in Guantanamo. But in general, what happened is that there were, a, you know, there were a vast number of agencies involved at Guantanamo. Um, some of them, like the FBI and, um, and some other organizations, were trying to build evidence that they could use to prosecute people. So, you know, they understood from the beginning the basis that you can't prosecute people if you've abused them. Um, and also, you know, people who know about serious interrogation know that how worthless it is to torture people because, you know, they will produce unreliable information. So that was one side of what was happening at Guantanamo. On the other side of what was happening at Guantanamo were various other agencies that were involved in um, trying to extract actionable intelligence. So this was not for any potential prosecutions. This was, um, you know, because they were convinced that these people had information about about some imminent threat, and that um, as a result, that you know they didn't want to be constrained by any of the rules regarding how you should non-coercively interrogate people. So what developed at Guantanamo was a process whereby, um, I think, you know, at least one hundred of the men held. You know, we heard um, we heard one time from someone involved many many years ago suggested that it was about one sixth of the prisoners. And that was the time of the prison's maximum population. So at least 100 people were subjected to a variety um, of horrible um, um, treatments, um, you know, much of which is clearly torture. Um, so, you know, th they were subjected to sleep deprivation. Um, they had a thing that they euphemistically called the frequent flyer program, um, where they were moved from cell to cell every few hours. Um, over days or weeks or even months so that they could never sleep. Um, they were held in cells in which the, um, you know, the, the temperature in the cells was either turned up really hot or really cold. Um, they were um, subjected to extremely loud music or white noise um, you know, for, for prolonged periods of time. Um, they were stripped naked. They were shackled in painful positions. Um, you know, they had their hair and their beards forcibly shaved. Um, the so-called interrogators used um, women to prey on their, you know, their, their, um, their sexual um, feelings. Um, they would use dogs if they thought that people were afraid of dogs. Um, the list goes on and on, really. Um, you know, and this 
actually, you know, was investigated a long, long time ago um, in the early years of the Bush administration by, um, after complaints really by, I think, FBI agents in particular who had seen um, just just examples of kind of wild, uh, the wild abuse of prisoners, supposedly for the purposes of interrogation, which, you know, which they just found absolutely appalling. Um, but, you know, that was very much a part of, of the Guantanamo story. Um, and as I say, I think, you know, I think what what's important for people to remember is that once lawyers were allowed into the prison after that Supreme Court ruling in June 2004, um, it was suddenly not possible for the US government to do everything that, that they did, you know, in a completely hidden manner. Suddenly there were outsiders present on the base. Um, and I think fundamentally that that um, that brought to an end the worst of the torture, but it didn't it didn't bring to an end um, all other kinds of abuse of the prisoners, you know, some of which um, involved, for example, um, at various times in the prison's history, the prisoners got together in significant numbers to resist their appalling treatment and embarked on hunger strikes. When they embarked on hunger strikes, they, you know, they were force fed. Um, and it also led to the military ramping up um, what it what it did and still does to this day, I'm sure, what it did to prisoners who were regarded as not behaving, which is that they sent in a team of kind of five heavily armoured thugs who would beat the crap out of somebody um, and then, you know, drag them to wherever it was that they wanted to take them. Um, so, you know, even on an everyday basis, there was, um, you know, quite a significant amount of violence at Guantanamo, which which continued. Um, so, yeah, I hope that I hope that provides some kind of context there. Could you talk a little bit about I mentioned that that during this time we would hear about uh, CIA enhanced interrogation. And and I know Guantanamo Bay was U.S. military, not, you know, but. Could you talk about how it seems like there were a lot of euphemisms used uh, during the Bush administration years to sort of um, paper over just how bad this all was? Well, sure. I mean, enhanced interrogation, I think, is the um, is the you know, is the key one when it comes to the abuse of prisoners, because, um, you know, it's not enhanced interrogation. It's torture. The fact that, you know, that John Yoo, who's um, still a law professor at Berkeley, um, wrote a memo saying that torture isn't torture unless it rises to the level of um, organ failure or death. Um, you know, doesn't mean that that's the case. That was an absolutely disgraceful um, legal opinion. Um, but it was relied upon by the Bush administration to justify what we know as torture. Um, you know, the CIA black sites were the particular place where um, waterboarding took place. Waterboarding, you know, is an ancient torture technique. You know, in the days of the Spanish Inquisition, they at least had the um, honesty to call it tortura del agua. Um, but under the Bush administration, it just became another enhanced interrogation technique, um, as as though you know that's just you know being slightly more tough than you would be in general, um, which you know is. Um, I think it's absolutely unacceptable that that people, you know, should be misled into thinking that what happened had any justification whatsoever. Um, you know, I think it's it's crucial, and you know, and actually, I think one of the very disturbing things that 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 um, that becomes apparent when you look at what they were doing is how often the torture didn't even serve um, 
any notional purpose. It was not as though, um, you know, it was an attempt to break people so that they would, as a result of that, make some kind of confession. Um, all too often over these these many years when torture took place, um, it seems um, so often to have become something that was so isolated from any practical purpose that it was torture just for its own sake. Almost like recreational sadism, essentially. Yeah. So then I guess we, we should get into the Obama years, right? Because, I mean, Obama's big um, line when he was trying to get elected was, you know, I will shut down, you know, these sites like Guantanamo Bay. Why didn't that happen? What, what, why is Guantanamo Bay still in existence? Well, to be honest, I think that he didn't know quite how much um, cynical opposition he was going to meet from the Republicans. And of course, you know, he was only in, in charge of the Congress for the first two years. And he spent so much of that time trying to get his health care bill sorted out. Um, but I do, I do think the Republicans behaved particularly appallingly um, towards Obama, and I think they did that fundamentally because of racism. Because um, you know, a black man had had um, had had the nerve to become the president of the United States. I honestly do. Um, but you know, so they tied his hands as much as possible in terms of you know of um, trying to make it difficult for him to release people. But I really don't want to absolve him from um, responsibility um, that in the end, he was the president of the United States. He was the commander in chief. And I think that he wasn't prepared when things got difficult to expend the political capital in doing what was required to actually get Guantanamo closed. But a number of people were released yeah, he released nearly 200 people eventually over his eight years in office um, and, you know, left 41 men there to be inherited by Donald Trump. So he, you know, he made progress towards um, to, towards the closure that he had promised, but didn't deliver on it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, like, like I say, I, um, I think that he probably should have started off much more... Um, much more aggressively in trying to pursue its closure, because what he basically did was he came into office, promised to close it within a year, and then did nothing apart from behind the scenes to appoint um, a review process, the Guantanamo Review Task Force, made up of senior officials throughout the, the government and the agencies who met once a week and reviewed the cases of the prisoners. Um, and, you know, when they issued their report, I mean, you can make set, you can understand that it made sense for him to go, who am I actually holding? Um, but it took a year for that process to happen. And by the time um, that task force um, released its report, the Republicans were, you know, full on in, um, in, you know, in fighting him every step of the way when it came to the closure of Guantanamo. Um, so, you know, he had 240 men. This review process spent a year assessing what to do with them and concluded that, um, you know, two thirds of these people should be released. Um, it took a long time, one way or another, for that to actually happen. But pretty much those men were released. So that left the other third of the men that he'd inherited from George W. Bush, who were either recommended for prosecution or who were um, put into a genuinely quite disturbing category of prisoner, I think, is people who were regarded as too dangerous to release um, while while the review 
process conceded that insufficient evidence existed to put them on trial. Um, you know, that means it's not evidence. That means these, you know, and so, you know, part of the whole issue over the um, over the time um, that Obama was in office and, you know, nothing happened under Trump, but, you know, Biden has inherited this situation of, well, who are these guys that you said you either wanted to prosecute or that you said were too dangerous that you wanted to keep holding them forever? And Obama, you know, eventually set up a second review process, a kind of parole type process to review the cases of these people who were supposedly too difficult, too dangerous to release. Um, and they were dubbed by, I think it was Carol Rosenberg of the New York Times, called them the forever prisoners, which was actually, um, you know, quite a good description because it was Obama who did it. You know, he'd inherited a prison where everybody was held without, fundamentally without rights. But he was the one who chose to categorize this group of men as too dangerous to release, the forever prisoners. Um, and, you know, as time has gone on, um, what we've seen is more and more of these men being approved for release. So a significant number of them, you know, were freed under Obama. Um, what Biden has particularly done um, in what's now nearly his first two years in office is that under him, these this review process, the periodic review boards has approved um, a significant number of the men still held for release. Um but they haven't yet been freed. That's the last bit of the equation that he um, doesn't seem to have um, have realised he needs to act on with um, with some proper sense of urgency, I think. So you had said earlier, I mean, is the Guantanamo Bay situation today, how different is it from when Bush was in office? I, I mean, you said the worst tortures happened under Bush, correct? Yeah, absolutely it did. And that, you know, and that changed when... Um, when Obama took office, um, I think fundamentally a lot of what happens at, at Guantanamo is is at the discretion of the military command there. So if you imagine it like a military prison, um, then, you know, it has elements of the kind of military sense of order and it has aspects of prison's sense, sense of order. So the people in charge of it will, you know, will behave as they see fit to maintain um, order within their prison. And that, you know, that under a, you know, under a more sadistic commander, shall we say, can make life very difficult for the people who are held there. Um, you know, other times you'll get a commander who is, um, who is, you know, slightly less hardline. Um, so I think on a day-to-day -day basis, that's really the problem. But, you know, I, What's really crucially important to remember at Guantanamo is the low-level form of torture that is involved in being held with no with no notion of when, if ever, you're going to be freed. Okay, so I mean, you know, if you or I commit a crime and are convicted for it, um, we're given a prison sentence. We know that that has an end end date. Um, these guys are held totally in 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 limbo. Um, they don't know um, whether they'll ever be released. And I think, you know, the, the idea that you could wake up every day with no sense of whether you have any future at all is actually um, a pretty despicable thing to do to people. And it's part of that entire problematic structure of setting Guantanamo up as a place where all the normal rules were, you know, abandoned. 
So the next thing I, I wanted to touch on, I, I know a lot of people that will talk about Guantanamo Bay and say, well, there's been, you know, bipartisan support for this, or at least not that, that Democrats haven't, you know, shut down Guantanamo Bay. But, you know, I, th- I think it's important to look at the Trump administration and Guantanamo Bay, because my understanding is that although I think there was at least one prisoner released under Trump's watch, I mean, Trump was saying in 2017, you know, the releases of detainees needs to end. He took a very hardline approach. So it does seem like uh, there may be differences between how the Democrats want to handle Guantanamo Bay and how the Republicans want to handle it. Is that uh, the case? Oh, absolutely. It's the case. Yeah. I mean, Trump Trump tweeted before he was even in office. There must be no more releases from Gitmo. Um, he only released one man. And the reason that he released that man was because he had agreed to a plea deal in his military commissions, the trial at Guantanamo, which has stipulated that he would be sent back to Saudi Arabia to serve the rest of his sentence. And so that he had to honor that deal. Um, Everything else that was left to his discretion, he absolutely just shut the door and sealed the prison shut. Um, and you know, and, um, that must have been, that that's unacceptable. I think, you know, (laughs) I think on any kind of basis that, you know, at the point at which he inherited the prison that had been open for 15 years, all of the, um, all of the facts that have been established about the prison over the, over the years that basically, um, not only is it unacceptable to treat this way, but the failures of intelligence that were involved in um, rounding up the people that were held at Guantanamo were so extreme that, um, you know, that it's really only appropriate to consider that a handful of the people held there um, constitute any kind of um, significant threat, were involved in any kind of meaningful way with al-Qaeda or or um, other organizations that pose a threat to the United States. Um, And, you know, and Trump simply wasn't interested. And so what we learned under Trump is how lawless Guantanamo is and how dependent it remains on the, you know, on the whim of the president of the United States. That should not be the case. You know, what we, I mean, and it's not just... Um, that Trump was allowed to get away with that, with that kind of um, abuse of executive power, for which he didn't have to do very much. He just didn't have to do anything at all, really. And and nothing was going to happen at Guantanamo. But, you know, we also um, need to remember that, you know, there are the the Congress and the courts are supposed to play a role in the, you know, in the balance of power in the United States. Um, and yet both Congress and the courts also, um, you know, have failed um, to be able to do anything demonstrable when someone like Trump gets in who says, that's it, no one's leaving Guantanamo. Um, you know, all that happened was that he had obviously had advice from people um, who somehow had their feet on the ground who said, no, we're not going to send anyone new there because this place is a legal nightmare. Um, And no, Mr. President, we're not going to officially start torturing people again either. But, um, you know, there was no one to say to to say anything, could say anything to him, to put pressure on him in any meaningful way um, to move towards the closure of Guantanamo. It it just simply was sealed shut. And 40 men just rotted there for four years, getting older, getting more ill, um, you know, and in some cases um, despairing of, of... 
you know, of, of anything positive happening. For people that would say, you know, well, what are we supposed to do uh, instead of Guantanamo? You know, how, how do we deal with uh, terrorism? I, I mean, to me, that's a, a strange question because, I mean, we're talking about torture here and I don't think, I think torture as a method is questionable anyways, uh, even in, in, in its effectiveness um, to uh, achieve certain aims. Um, you know, it, it becomes like a witch hunt thing, right? Um, yeah, but yeah. What, what do you say to people that say, well, what's the alternative uh, to dealing with terrorism outside of things like Guantanamo Bay? Well, I would say, first of all, I would say that, you know, that, that, that there was no evidence that anything that was obtained through the torture program after 9-11 um, was useful. But, you know, there was, there was, there's not been no demonstration that um, information could not have been obtained non-coercively without the use of torture. And in fact... In many cases, we know that the only productive information came about non-coercively. So the torture question should be a non-starter. But if people want to know about prosecuting terrorism, all they need to do is look at the evidence from the, the U.S. courts. For this entire 20-year period, the U.S. courts have been successfully prosecuting people um, accused of involvement in terrorism. They were doing it, you know, straight after 9-11. They were doing it when Guantanamo opened. They were doing it through all those years of the Bush administration when he is, was tying himself up into um, legal knots at Guantanamo. The courts were successfully prosecuting terrorists. So that's all people really need to know. Um, but, you know, the, like I said, I think it's crucial for people to step back from the notion, you know, which is fostered by the CIA and by, you know, their contacts in Hollywood to try and sell to the American people the notion that torture works. It doesn't. Um, if you can't um, get information, what you what you need to understand if you want to get in, um, information from somebody is that um, you need to build a rapport with them. You need, you need to um, do that and, you know, skilled people involved in interrogation have been doing that for a long time, and uh, you know it, it works. Um, so the the whole torture route was a, should have been an absolute non-starter. But as I'm sure you I'm sure you would agree, it is aggressively sold to people quite often through you know through our entertainment channels um, as something that works. So before we close out, and I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I, I had mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Um, Mans uh, I don't want to mispronounce his name, but Mansoor Idafi, I believe, uh, was in a recent interview talking about uh, Ron DeSantis actually participating in um, torture at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that um, interview that, that has been sort of um, making a storm on the Internet lately? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been trying to work out. Um, I, I've been trying to talk to Mansoor about it, but I haven't heard back from him. The, only, the, the problem I have with the story is that the, the timelines don't seem to make sense to me. <clears throat> so as far as we know, DeSantis went to Guantanamo in March 2006, um, or was it 2005? 2006. Um, the, the prison-wide hunger strike that Mansoor is talking about, which definitely... Um, was absolutely raging throughout the prison, and which began in the summer of 2005, continued throughout the whole of 2005. But by January 2006, when the, um, when the military were very, very aggressively force-feeding prisoners, 
um, they pretty much brought it to an end so that by February 2006, um, as far as I understand it, there were only four um, long-standing prisoners who were still on a hunger strike. Um, so I, I haven't been able to understand um, how it is that Santis was involved when he seems to have arrived after after the whole of this took place. Now, is it the case that Santis, DeSantis actually was there before he said he was? I imagine that that's, um, that's one possible explanation. But otherwise, it doesn't seem to add up to me that, um, that, he, 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 that he was there during the worst of what took place. So, um, yeah, I'm not able to clarify... Um, but I do think that that needs that needs looking into are the timelines of you know when he was there as to whether he could actually have been involved in the things that that he's accused of. Do you think it's worth um, still exploring and investigating uh, that specific story? Um, like it doesn't sound like you're saying to throw it out completely, but there needs to be more clarification. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it may be that he was involved not at the the, the um, peak of the hunger strike. Maybe he was involved um, during the time when the only people who were still hunger striking were these um, long term hunger strikers who who absolutely refused to break their fast um, in the spring of two thousand six. At the time when um, when he, you know, according to the official story is the time that he was at Guantanamo. So, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely not ruling it out. All I'm all I'm, um, you know, putting out to your listeners here today is that I question the the timelines, um, and I think it's you know there is more work that needs to be done in trying to establish um, the viability of the various stories. So this is an addendum of sorts to the portion of the conversation with Andy concerning the recent claims about Ron DeSantis and Guantanamo Bay. It lasts about four minutes, and I think you'll know the point at which we go back to the original conversation. This was recorded about five days after I first spoke to Andy. So, Andy, uh, you were talking in our conversation about the question of Ron DeSantis and Guantanamo Bay and uh, Mansour Adafi's uh, testimony about um, Ron DeSantis. And you had issues, I guess, with the timeline and Mansour has gotten back to you. So what's the word right now? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I asked Mansour about it. You know, I messaged him and he got back to me and, it, you know, he's absolutely convinced that that it was DeSantis. So... I, I have no reason to doubt him. And he also said that um, he's been in touch with another former prisoner who is um, convinced that that it was him as well. So in terms of the timing, I think, um, you know, what's interesting, interesting is that Mansour um, suggested that people would turn up at Guantanamo before, um, before Andy, they officially uh, began. Andy, real quick, um, can we start again? Because you're, you're breaking up. Mansour got in touch with you. Yeah, so I uh, I messaged Mansour just to try and clarify, you know, my um my feelings about how the timeline didn't quite work out, um, and he uh, got back to me to say that it was definitely in two thousand and six that DeSantis was there. So he wasn't suggesting that he was there in two thousand and five when I know that the hunger strike was particularly at its at its peak. Um, he also said that he um, is in contact with another former prisoner. 
um, who had also uh, confirmed that DeSantis was um, was present um, during the the um, force feedings. So um, you know, I've no I've no reason to doubt that. Um, it, um, I think that um, clarifies really um, what had been my doubts about about the the timings of things. Um, Mansour suggested that um, that people turned up at Guantanamo for training before their their actual you know tour of duty, if you like, began. Um, so that might put DeSantis there um, in this kind of timeline period of um, earlier in in two thousand and six, rather than March, which was when um, he said he was there. Um, but you know, I'm I'm actually. You know, I, I feel that this establishes clearly that there isn't a problem with the story. Um, I look forward to there being, um, you know, more research undertaken by people to exact uh, to establish exactly what was happening, where and when. Um, you know, Mansour did also say to me that what they were doing with hunger strikers as well at the time was that they were moving, separating them and moving them around to various places. Um, within the prison, which was presumably another effort to try and um, break the will of the hunger strikers, um, it, it's you know it remains um, a very dark but fascinating time in Guantanamo's history. You know there'd been this massive hunger strike, and this was now like the hardcore twenty or so prisoners that they worked really hard to break. You, so you mean the the massive hunger strikes in two thousand five? In two thousand six, there were you know um, I, I think it was like twenty or so that were still not breaking. That's right. Yeah, it looks like what we what we're looking at here is the period when DeSantis was there, when there were still twenty men involved in the hunger strike, um, and you know, and the authorities were um, pretty savage in in uh, trying to break that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I, um, I I imagine that people will want to hear more from Mansoor, um, you know, to to try and establish more exactly about what happened when. But um, it, it seems very much to me as though the spotlight is on Ron DeSantis now for this. Uh, with regards to Mansoor's um, testimony overall, um, could you just speak to maybe who he was, because he's sort of become a, I think, a spokesperson for uh, the detainees. Maybe you could let my listeners know uh, about his sort of history. Yeah, well, I mean, Mansour was, you know, just one of the many people rounded up and sent to Guantanamo who'd been in Afghanistan or Pakistan and were regarded as, you know, as as, um, as somebody significant. Um, and, you know, Mansour was eventually approved for release from Guantanamo and resettled in Serbia. Um, and he wrote a book. Um, he wrote a book, Don't Forget Us Here, which is an absolutely searing and extraordinary account of life in the prison, because it turns out that, um, you know, I mean, it, it's harrowing, it's hilarious, and it is absolutely full of humanity. I've never read anything quite like it, um, to be able to put all those things into one account. But it turns out that Mansour, along with a lot of other younger prisoners, um, mainly Yemenis, but not entirely, um, absolutely fought against the um, against the um, the way they were being treated in Guantanamo. So you know they they um, undertook hunger strikes. They caused trouble whenever they could, um, and were punished, you know, horribly and remorselessly for it. Um, 
And, you know, and of these dozen or so men um, who were known as the Red Eyes because, uh, you know, they, they never got enough sleep because they were constantly being abused by the authorities. Um, what I found particularly disturbing is that um, I think, if I remember correctly, around five of these men died at Guantanamo. These are men who allegedly committed suicide at Guantanamo. And yet they are amongst the men who were actually committed to um, fundamentally resisting the injustice of Guantanamo and therefore don't sound to, to me at all like um, the kind of examples of people who would give up and would therefore sacrifice their lives. Um, but whichever way you look at that, I mean, I think it's genuinely really quite shocking that five of the nine men who died at Guantanamo were part of this group of young men who were Mansell's friends who had, you know, resisted the horrible injustice of Guantanamo in the pursuit of, you know, being treated appropriately, um, you know, which, which didn't happen. Um, so, you know, I can't recommend Mansell's book highly enough. Um, and, um, you know, and I look forward to hearing more about this story because obviously um, with DeSantis looking like such a prominent um, Republican candidate, then I think you know it needs clarifying one way or another. What 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 did he get up to uh, in all this time? And you know, I think um, maybe it's not the only aspect of his military record that people need to be clear about. Um, I think he was also involved in Iraq, wasn't he? And I think he was um, involved um, at some time in Fallujah, where we know that that um, a lot of terrible things happened. So. You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting conversation because uh, clearly, if you're kind of unquestioningly patriotic, then uh, you know when a candidate steps forward and has a military career and makes reference to Guantanamo and Iraq, it ticks all the boxes for you. But for people who are looking at these things with greater scrutiny, um, you know, then we all have an awareness that um, you know the terrible things happened at Guantanamo and terrible things happened in Iraq as well. I was going to say real quick, I mean, you know, I believe DeSantis was, I mean, he was definitely one of the people that uh, was very against Obama uh, trying to shut down Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He tried to bring legislation in, didn't he, to, um, to prevent people from leaving Guantanamo. And obviously, you know, his presence at Guantanamo, as somebody who believed what he had been told about Guantanamo, was going to see the place as being full of terrorists who must never be released. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the hardline right-wing Republican line about Guantanamo is these guys are all terrorists, um, you know, and it's simply untrue. Um, you know, it fails to take into uh, account um, not only the copious evidence that's been gathered over the years to show how shambolic um, the intelligence was that led to these men being held at Guantanamo in the first place, but I think it also fails to to um, to recognize what I think Mansour's story is so important for, which is that imagine that you're a young man sent to Guantanamo. You know, you haven't done anything, but you certainly, you know, maybe at most what you were was, you know, you'd been um, you were in Afghanistan, you've been sent there and told to help the Taliban. You're sent to Guantanamo and you're treated absolutely appallingly in a place from which there appears to be no escape. The law has been shredded in front of your eyes. You know, you're abused on a regular basis. Um, 
would you, you know, I can I can understand. And it was particularly the young guys who did this, yeah? You know, they're 18, they're 19, they're 20, you know? Other other prisoners at Guantanamo who were in their 30s were at a different phase of their lives, you know? Um, but, yeah, I can completely understand that resistance. But if you're waltzing into there from a position, you know, in a military context where you've been told they're all the worst of the worst, you're going to see these guys as terrorists when, in fact, what they're doing is they're reacting against the completely horrible circumstances of the hell. Yeah, because DeSantis was a JAG officer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But I think he, I mean, he was, you know, according to Mansell's story, he was, you know, he was present while people were being force-fed and he, you know, and he approved of that. Um, it's easy to see in a context that you would work at Guantanamo and, and you know, get caught up in that. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, it, it will be interesting to see how this story unfolds, I think. In closing, uh, when it comes to Guantanamo Bay, uh, I mean, beyond the uh, Mansour's story about DeSantis, uh, should we be worried about, you know, uh, a DeSantis um, presidency just because, you know, as as bad as Democrats may have been at tr- at actually getting uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, shut down, it seems like if a Republican gets into office, uh, that will totally impede any possibility of Guantanamo getting shut down. Am I looking at that correctly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the I think the important thing to remember now is there were 35 men held at Guantanamo. 20 of these men have been approved for release. Biden needs to get a move on and get those prisoners out of there. Not only, you know, not only because that is just and fair and the only appropriate thing to do, but also it reduces the prison population then to 15. It costs half a billion dollars a year to keep Guantanamo open. Um, you know, how ridiculous is it that it costs so much money to hold these people without without proper rights? I, I was going to say real quick, not to interrupt you, but I, I think that's actually a good argument for um, maybe more conservative people to hear, like the, the amount of spending that goes into Guantanamo. Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but, you know, but the problem that we have at Guantanamo really, you know, the first one ought to be easy for Biden. Release these people that you've approved for release. Get them out of there. Then we're looking at, you know, uh, then we're down to an argument of like, well, the people that we've got left, these 15 men include the alleged bad guys, include the people allegedly responsible for 9-11. What are we going to do with them? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, You know, they either need moving to the mainland, to the U.S. court system, which, you know, Obama tried and then gave up when when he met Republican resistance, or they need to, you know, stay at Guantanamo and at the moment there are negotiations for a plea deal because it's very very hard to um, to to properly um, deal with death penalty issues um, you know in general there are high safeguards for death penalty cases but at Guantanamo everything is so complicated you know these these pre-trial hearings have been going round and round and round because on the one side the defense team are going we have to talk about the torture on the other side, the prosecutors are saying the last thing that we're going to do is talk about the torture. Torture has tainted everything. Um, but those guys are, you know, they're going nowhere. I, the plea deal discussions look to me like a good idea, um, but they're not going to lead to anyone going free. Um, the question is, if everybody else has got out of Guantanamo, if we're just left with these handful of the alleged bad guys, the ones who've been charged, can the United States government reach some kind of um, arrangement with them to bring this story to an end 
where they won't be freed, they will carry on being in prison. But is that going to happen at Guantanamo in a broken trial system that doesn't work? I don't know. But we need to get to that point because then there will not really be anything that um, that 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 you know um, any re future Republican president can do in the way that Donald Trump did, where he just shut down um, all the processes that were in place that should have led to the, the continuing release of people who were not significant and never were in the first place. Just uh, real briefly here, maybe let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work. And also, if people are concerned about this issue of Guantanamo Bay, I mean, what, what can the average person do? I mean, are we... I mean, is there any anything we can do, really? Okay, well, you know, um, my I have a couple of websites. So, so one is Close Guantanamo. So that's closeguantanamo.org, which I set up ten years ago with a lawyer who works on the Guantanamo cases, um, and also my own personal website, andyworthington.co.uk. Uh, where there's a huge archive of stuff about Guantanamo and other things that interest me. Um, I'd love people to come and visit the sites uh, if they want to know more and to get involved. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult situation, obviously, as to what, what we can do when it's so dependent on um, decisions taken by the administration and, and by Congress, actually. And... Um, Congress, you know, reinforces these restrictions on releasing prisoners every year in the National Defense Authorization Act. And um, the latest one for next year is about to be finalized. So it's not until next year that in any meaningful sense, you know, the American people can put pressure on their elected representatives to drop um, to drop obstructions on the closure of Guantanamo. Um, but, you know, you can you can write to your representatives, you can make your feelings heard on that. Um, and you can also write to the government departments and, the, and the, you know, the people in charge of them to say that Guantanamo should be closed. Um, beyond that, it's difficult to, to know what we can do. You know, we can't um, after all these years of working on Guantanamo, it's surprising how few people really care. So I can't say to people, yeah, come and join this mass movement that we've got that's opposed to the existence of Guantanamo because it simply doesn't exist. But those of us who care about it, care about it very passionately. And so if people are inspired, they will then be joining um, a really wonderful community of people who, uh, you know, I'm in London, but when I visit the States, it always seems to me that these are the people who should actually be running your country. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again, Andy Worthington, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you very much. It's been great. Great to talk. Thanks. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Darin J. Salam and Andy Worthington. Be sure to check out the movie Farha, now on Netflix. Again, I can't recommend it highly enough. And if you can... Pick up Andy Worthington's book, The Guantanamo Files, if you're interested in learning more about the history of Guantanamo Bay. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... 
Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.